You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the Freedom Pack podcast, I am joined by Russell Foster, director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute and head of Nutfield Laboratory of Ophthalmology at the University of Oxford. Russell, thank you so much for joining me today and talking really, about this brand new book. It really delighted to join you. Um, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, Lifetime, your new book, The New Science of the Body Clock and How it can revolutionize your sleep and health. So I thought we'd kick this off with something right at the start of the book. You said that the arrogance of being a human means that we assume we're above biology now mm. and that we can do what we want when we want. And so we all tend to, to push these activities, these additional activities into the nighttime. And you described it as almost declaring war upon the night and if you had to give a sort of elevator pitch to the average person who's never really looked into this subject before never really contemplated the importance of of regular sleep if you gave an elevator pitch to this average person on on why is such a detrimental practice what would you say to the average person well, I think for so long, we have marginalized sleep. We've regarded it sort of like an illness that needs a cure. Um, and certainly those of us who remember the 80s, and, and you won't, <laughs> um, um, we know people used to come in and say, oh, yeah, I've done another all-nighter. And, you know, people used to slap them on the back and say, oh, well done, how impressive. And in fact, it's a complete and unmitigated disaster. Because what we've done by invading the night because we can, is abandoned without knowing it, one of the most important aspects of our biology, which is sleep. And, and what's really become clear over the past 15, 10 years is what sleep is providing us. So we've known for, I, suppose, I guess, some time that, that sleep will help us consolidate our memory. So experiences will be will be laid, laid, laid down um, whilst we sleep. But it's not just memory, um, what we're also experiencing is the problem solving. If you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, then a night of sleep can hugely enhance your capability to do that. And it's kind of stuff that our grandparents told us, you know, think on it. But but now we have the scientific evidence to show that, that that's, that's such an important aspect of, of sleep. We also know that, that toxins such as beta amyloid, which has been associated with um, the development of Alzheimer's disease, is actually cleared and processed and packaged up and got rid of whilst we sleep, which may help explain why really bad sleep, um, you know, as, as in a shift worker or in the business community during the middle years, predisposes to dementia and Alzheimer's in later years. I mean, it's, a, it's not for everybody. It's going to be those who are vulnerable, but it's certainly now being thought of as a, as a significant risk factor. And the fact that, you know, when we don't sleep, 
our ability to appreciate the company of others, our sense of humor, our empathy. Um, we're much more um, yeah, vulnerable to doing stupid and unreflective things uh, without sleep uh, and just, just communicate generally. And that's short term. Longer term, we run into the problems of microsleeps, uncontrollably falling asleep at the wheel. And there was um, a study just a few years ago for junior doctors showing that 57% um, had either had a crash or a near miss on the night shift um, uh, after, after finishing the night shift on the journey home. Um, and then we go into the sort of the biggies, which is uh, a suppressed immunity, which increases chances of infection, but also um, things like cancer, coronary heart disease, uh, and obesity and diabetes too. So it's being tired is not just the inconvenience of not feeling tip top um, uh, at, 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 at a certain time during the day. It actually has a global impact upon our ability to interact and indeed our long-term health and well-being. Something I, something I picked up on there, you mentioned shift work and you gave that example of, of doctors. And I think I remember reading in um, Matthew Walker's book years ago, I think you'd be familiar with Matthew Walker, um, that he mentioned about shift work and doctors. And he would almost want to demand to know how much sleep his surgeon had had the night before or what their sleeping pattern had been like. Um, and when I mentioned you were coming on the show, and I asked uh, our audience for questions. Almost all of them were, how can I build a perfect or better marriage between shift work and a healthy sleep pattern? If that is my job, I can't really do much about no. that situation right now. What would you advise those people think, to make the best? I think you make, you make a, a really important point. Um, and it would be naive to say our 24-7 society can be put back in its bottle and, and you know it, that genie's out um and so what we've got to do is, is think of ways of mitigating some of the problems um and so if we just think about it um if we know that there's a greater risk of having a car accident on the drive home and it's and it is highly significant um then what we should be using and, and maybe employers should supply are these apps which can be, you know, you can put onto your phone, you clip it onto the dashboard, it can tell whether the car is moving or whether you're showing head nods. So it alerts you that you're falling asleep. Um, sufficiently bright light in the workplace, which increases levels of alertness. Um, so that's, that's really important. But I think one really important issue is that employers have a duty of care and knowing that their night shift workers are more vulnerable to these serious illnesses, they should have higher frequency health checks. We all know that if you detect cancer early, then you're gonna have a much better chance of curing it. So what we wanna do is, is detect cancer, coronary heart disease, metabolic abnormalities, such as diabetes too, before they become chronic. And, and it's an important issue here because the longer you do night shift work, the greater the vulnerability to these, these problems. And so it might be sensible to have, I don't know, five years of night shift work and then be able to rotate to day, day shift work. So, so you can unwind some of the potential problems. And I should say, well, why do, we, why do people get ill after, after doing long-term night shift work? And that's, of course, because the, the body clock 
does not adapt to the demands of working at night. And we can discuss why shortly. And so what happens is that the, 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 what we have to do is override this entire biology saying you should be asleep. And the way we do that is to activate the stress axis. And of course, uh, short-term activation of the stress axis is good. It's a bit like, you know, going into first gear in a car. It gives you that acceleration. It can be really useful. But if you leave the engine in first gear, you're going to wreck the engine. And, and it's a bit like that with our biology. Um, and, and so I think that's it's, it's really important to have that understanding of what's going of what's going wrong. OK, so um, knowing that there's higher rates of obesity, diabetes two, metabolic abnormalities, um, why not provide the appropriate nutrition for night shift workers? What's available? High fat, high sugar, about as bad as it can get. So, it, you know, what, what employers should be doing is providing or making the option available of protein, protein-rich, easy-to-digest uh, foods. Um, I think there's often a complete failure to appreciate the consequences of night shift work, not only on the individual, but also the broader family unit. And so providing the appropriate education so that people know what's going on. And, and you know, the divorce rate, for example, in some sectors of night shift work is six times greater than day shift workers. So it's not just for the individual, but it's for, for, for the broader family. Uh, uh, you know, why is your per partner turned into this, this kind of monster without a sense of humor, without empathy, uh, with irritab you know, irritability, increased anger? Um, the failure to, to appreciate consequences of actions. It's not because they've turned into a monster. It's one of the consequences of doing night shift work. And, uh, and you know, and couples need to sort of kind of appreciate this. Um, the other thing um, I think is there's variable ability to cope with night shift work. And so there's, you know, across society, morning types, intermediate types, and evening types, sort of larks and owls. And so it's relatively easy to do. It might be smart to chronotype our night shift workers and, and, and make sure that the late types are on the late shift rather than putting the late types on the morning shift, which would be really bad, or indeed the morning types on the late shift. So for obvious reasons, for economic reasons, and we live in a 24-7 society, we're not, we're not going to get rid of it. Um, what we can do is mitigate some of the problems. And I think it's very important for both the employer, but also, uh, but also the employee to think about ways in which they can mitigate. Um, and as I say, the employer has a duty of care. So I would expect all industries, all, all employers should, should, should think about what they could do to make the situation better. Um, there's no one standard shift work pattern that works across the, the spectrum. I mean, that doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's whether you do rotating, advancing, delaying, it works for some better than others, and we're all very different. Um, so that is not the answer. I think it's to appreciate there's going to be problems and how can we mitigate those problems. But my, my, I think my feeling would be, okay, do it for a few years. And if you possibly can cycle out of it and then maybe cycle back in later on. And with this round the clock society you talk about, we've almost come to see sleep as a luxury. I think over the years in yeah. all my jobs, there seems to be this 
this sort of pride that people take in how little they can function, uh, how, how well they can function on little sleep. Like I'll go into the office in the morning and someone will say, oh, I only had five hours last night. And someone will go, oh, you're lucky. I had four hours. And yeah, I, I'm that type of person. I can function off five hours. But I remember reading something before that said, if you took um, the number of the amount of people in the world that can function perfectly off less than seven hours sleep and, and round it to a whole number, it would probably be zero. So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's a couple of really interesting points there. First is that there's immense variation in both the amount of sleep, the duration of sleep that people need and um, the timing of their sleep. You know, we've, we've already touched on larks and owls, but also some people can can genuinely get away, away with six hours and and some people need 10 or maybe even 11. Um, and the key thing is to work out what what's your sleep pattern um, and then defend those behaviors. And, and so how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? Well, do you feel able to function optimally during the day? I mean, that's the you know, basic, basic one. Um, but if you need an alarm clock to get you out of bed in the morning or somebody else to wake you up, um, if you oversleep extensively on free days like weekends um, or, or something like that, or particularly on holidays, if you take a long time to wake up, you know, you're feeling groggy for a long time. If you're feeling sleepy, irritable um, and fatigued when awake, that tells you you're not getting enough sleep. If you crave a nap during the day, uh, if you're craving caffeinated drinks or high sugar drinks, and friends and family comment, you know, or colleagues, you know, you seem a bit more irritable or, you know, you, you're not so empathetic um, as it used to be. This is all telling you you're not getting enough sleep. And the key thing, because we are so different, we need to work out for ourselves what's the best plan. Part of the reason for writing Lifetime was um, I think we've, we've, we've got a greater awareness of sleep. And then what's happened is that people are now terrified about sleep and not getting enough sleep. Um, and some of the advice can be rather unhelpful. So saying you must get eight hours is not true. It, 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 it's true. It's an average. And so it, it, it's fine for some, but, but not all. Um, and in the same way that <clears throat> people um, have said you must get an uninter uninterrupted eight hours. Well, that's absolutely not the case. It seems that the, the natural sleeping pattern of humans is not a single block of sleep. It's called polyphasic or biphasic, which means, you know, there's a there's a there's a going into sleep. You go to sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep. And that's what you see in societies without electric light. Uh, it's what you see with people if given enough time to sleep in the lab. And um, uh, there's a wonderful chap uh, uh, called Roger uh, Eckert, uh, who um, has looked at historical records and the conversation littered throughout, you know, pre-industrial writings has been, I had a wonderful first sleep. Um, uh, cl clinicians are talking about when to have sex. Um, and, and, and there's a wonderful French uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, doctor who basically said, oh, have sex after your first sleep when you'll be more rested and do it better. I mean, you know, it was, it, it, it sort of populated um, literature and we've forgotten that. We now think if we wake up in the middle of the night, that's the end of it. I'm going to start doing my emails. I'm going to, you know, do um, uh, have a cup of coffee. And in fact, if we stay relaxed and calm, we will go back to sleep again. And I think the, the point is that sleep is such a variable, dynamic biology. I mean, I was talking to somebody else 
uh, just 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 this morning and saying, you know, I had a terrible night's sleep on 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 Saturday um, for reasons I have no idea. It was a lovely day, great fun, you know, all the rest of it, um, but didn't sleep very well. Last night slept great. So it's going to be variable and, and it will will change from day to day. And the key thing is that most people don't have a sleep problem. They invariably have an anxiety problem, which either prevents them getting to sleep. And if they wake up, they just think of all the horrors, um, that, you know, and, and then they can't get back to sleep again. And so so relaxation techniques um, can be as important as good sleep hygiene, I think. Sorry, I, I prattled on quite a long time. No, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and one of the things you one of the things you said there about people who learn the consequences of bad sleep then become anxious and mm. and find it harder to sleep that was that's really interesting because that was one of the main criticisms of um why we sleep by matthew walker that it scared everyone straight but almost to a detrimental point where they were now just so worried about their bad sleep that it had a knock-on effect so yes. i'd like to to, uh, well, it's an amusing story on that one. Uh, somebody came up to me just pre-lockdown and they said, <clears throat> I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, yes, you will die. But it may have nothing to do with the fact that you're not getting eight hours of sleep. And I think Matt's book was great because it, it, it raised the... Um, the knowledge you know the, about the importance of sleep and i think that's very important um <clears throat> uh but what we now need to do is 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 take the terror out of sleep mm. and the point of lifetime is that it it really does you know so one shoe size does not fit all work it out for yourself and there's loads of stuff that you can do um and uh not to get anxious about sleep but embrace it um and love it as a as an important part of our behavior yeah but sorry i i cut you off no, I was just perfect. That, that, that was my point. I was thinking, let's get practical with it. So if you had maybe, do you have any sort of golden rules that the that the average person should be aware of in their relationship between, uh, well, their relationship with sleep in terms of maybe their bedroom setting, maybe yeah. their relationship <clears throat> with, with artificial light before bed? What are some of your sort of go-to rules? I think, I think this is so important. And <clears throat> I think we can divide... Um, tricks and techniques in, into four sections. What could we do during the day? What should we do immediately before bed? What can we do actually in the bedroom? And what we do when we crawl into bed? <clears throat> um, and the first thing is, during the day, <clears throat> is get morning light. Morning light for 90% of us is what will set the body clock to the light-dark cycle and make the sleep-wake cycle stable. Um, and, I, I, and I mean light light outside the clock is relatively insensitive to sleep to so the clock is relatively insensitive to light so we need the sorts of levels that we get outside um, <clears throat> most of us live in dim dark caves and i think that's a problem so get outside get the light and in the winter get a light box um, good 30 minutes of several thousand lux if you nap during the day make sure it's 20 minutes or less and make sure it's not uh, close to bedtime, because what that nap will do is push back the sleep pressure, meaning that you'll go to sleep later that night. So for teenagers, for example, it's a real, real problem because they struggle to get to sleep at night. They have shortened sleep. And I, I, I sense you smiling here. Is, am I, is there some resonance here? Um, uh, uh, and, and therefore struggle, you know, for, for tired during the day, uh, then have a two hour sleep fairly close to bedtime 
pushes back the sleep pressure and then can't get to sleep that night. So it's a vicious circle. Um, <clears throat> exercise, absolutely brilliant, do it, but try not to do it too close to bedtime because what that will do is increase core body temperature. And part of falling asleep is a slight drop in core body temperature. And in fact, the clock is regulating our, our, the, the, the distribution of our blood. So it, sh it shoves it from the core to the skin and the hands and feet, which is why people last week were having such difficulty sleeping because they couldn't have that drop in core, core body temperature. So great, have, do the exercise, but not too close to bedtime. Um, avoid excessive uh, um, uh, consumption of things like caffeine uh, in the afternoon. For some people, it can be extremely, uh, there's some people really sensitive and it has a long half-life, which means it hangs around in the body for a long time. So try not to have caffeinated drinks, you know, much beyond the middle of the afternoon. Food intake, this is really interesting. And this is some of the stuff that's emerged over the past few, few years. Human eating patterns have changed dramatically over the past, you know, uh, since, since the Industrial Revolution um, and particularly since the middle of the 20th century. What we used to do uh, pre, you know, for most of us, and, you know, I can remember talking to my grandparents. I mean, the, the big meal of the day was breakfast and, and lunch, what they called dinner with a, more of a lighter snack in the evening. Um, and as the demands of society have, you know, we rush to work, may not have breakfast, we may have a sandwich at our desk, and we finally get home, and then we have a blowout. And of course, the great problem with that is that um, uh, food that we consume during the first part of the day is, is, is more likely to be burnt up and used. Whereas if we have it before we go to bed, it's gonna be turned to fat. And if you have a higher BMI, you're going to increase chances of things like obstructive sleep apnea, which is where actually the musculature of the throat collapses when you're asleep. You can't breathe. And so, you, you know, your sleeping partner may detect that, you know, you, you'll be sort of snoring away and then there'll be a absolute cessation of breathing. And then they'll wake up with this great gasp. And that's really dangerous. And that needs to be looked at by, by, by a GP. Um, and then I suppose towards the end of the day is step back. Um, as we've discussed, the great problem is anxiety and it's transitioning from a demanding day and do whatever that relaxes you, whether it's meditation, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's reading a, an old favorite book or listening to music, just find some way of stepping back. So there's lots of things we should be doing during the day. Before bed, reduce the levels of light by approximately 30 minutes. Now, this is important important because increased light increases alertness um, and that will delay sleep onset but there's a lot of nonsense about digital devices so um, looking at a kindle looking at an iphone the, the amount of light you get from these devices or indeed a computer screen is very low and it's not going to have a big effect upon the body clock it will if it's bright enough and for long enough but for most uh, uh, cases it won't i mean a study looked at Kindle use, highest intensity of a Kindle, four hours on five consecutive nights, and it delayed sleep onset by, by 10 minutes. And it was just statistically significant. So, you know, uh, it's more of the alerting effect that these devices have rather than the light. Um, and so that's important. Um, try not to use prescription sedatives, the Z drugs, for example. 
they are what they, they say, they are sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. And in fact, your general practitioner will always advise short-term use, fine, but not long-term use. Same for alcohol. Many people sedate themselves with alcohol to try and get asleep, but it isn't proper sleep. So be careful not to use those sorts of sedatives uh, and to be dependent upon them to get off to sleep. <clears throat> now, one of the problems is that just before we go to bed, it's perhaps the only time that couples get uh, to talk to their partner because of the busy stuff going on during the day. So um, <clears throat> my advice would be don't talk about stressful subjects. So I banned any discussion of family finances before we go to sleep. It's just way too stressful. So, you know, try and find a time for those stressful topics, which you need to do, but don't make it just before you go to bed. Um, <clears throat> so the bedroom itself, we talked about temperature, uh, 18 to 22 degrees um, max um, for that drop in core body temperature. Quiet, if it isn't, then use white noise of some sort. Dark, particularly the street light coming in, which can increase alertness and, 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 and wake, wake you up. Very difficult because the bedroom is often the office these days because of COVID and working from home. But try to separate the sleeping space as much as you can from the workspace, because, as we said, it's just another way of generating anxiety. Um, don't clock watch. Many people have one of those illuminated clocks by the bed. Wake up in the middle of the night um, and then you glance and think, oh, crikey, you know, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off. It doesn't matter. So so. You know, cover the face. It's when the alarm goes off that's the key thing, not that it's two hours before the alarm goes off. And uh, very, very uh, strong advice here, which is don't take these digital and electronic sleep apps too seriously. Um, none of them are supported by any of the sleep um, academies. Uh, none of them are approved uh, as clinical devices. They can give you a pretty good measure of roughly when you went to sleep and roughly when you woke up and how many times you woke up in the middle of the night. But when they start saying, oh, you've had lots of slow wave sleep or REM sleep, or and, it, and it, it's essentially meaningless. Um, we don't even really know what REM sleep and slow wave sleep are for, let alone, you know, trying to impart some wonderful sort of um, uh, advice about them. So, you, you know, <clears throat> you know if you've had a good night's sleep or not. And many people get these things and then they just throw them away after, after a few months, realizing they're just completely useless. Um, in bed, keep a routine, both free days and work days. Um, also, we're kind of cheap in, in this regard. You know, 30% of our time will be spent in bed. We don't really take much attention. Um, we kind of go for the cheapest pillows and mattresses. And all. But I think it's really important to go to the shops. You know, lie down, sit in them, see if it feels comfortable. Use, use the right sorts of pillows. I mean, make it a real haven that you think, oh, wow, you know, there's a lovely duvet and pillows. Invest in a good in a good bed and, and, and pillows. Keep bedside lights low because of alertness. Um, uh, you could consider defining the sleeping space with particular oils, like lavender, for example. Um, the, the science behind that isn't that strong, but I do know people um, have used a, a distinctive smell to say, ah, oh, that, that means I'm now in my sleeping space. And in fact, you know, some couples um, take aftershave or, or perfume if they're, if they're, if they're traveling and, and because it reminds them of home and it defines the sleeping space away from home. Um, important earplugs, um, you know, um, uh, if your partner snores, 
and you can't stand uh, earplugs, then find an alternative sleeping space. Now, to many, that's an absolute horror because it, 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 if you sleep separately, it, me it seems to in some way define the nature of your relationship. It doesn't. It just means you'll both get better sleep. You'll both be more empathetic, have a better sense of humor and enjoy the time you've got together during the day better. So, so don't worry about it. Um, um, and as we've said, if you wake up, stay calm. It's not necessarily the end of sleep. You may want to leave the, the, the bed, go read somewhere quietly or do something, but it's, you know, don't worry about waking up in the night. And that's very true, particularly at the older we get. So as you see, there's lots of ways of tweaking and enhancing um, our sleep and, it, and what works for each of us as individuals. Yeah, I love this. This is, a, this is amazing. I, I really appreciate this sort of practicality. It's my favorite thing on, on a podcast is when people can take things away. And you mentioned that what surprised me is actually the 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 Kindle example you gave, the phones yeah. and, and, and how much we read into those. Do you take any stock? Because I've heard this be debated a lot between these um, anti blue light glasses that people wear is there any stock or benefit in those type of uh those type of tactics or are they almost just a sort of placebo effect i think it's a placebo effect i think the data behind them is is minimal or absent completely and in fact i think they can be counterproductive um so i spoke to not regarding the glasses but i spoke to a um a teenager about these 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 apps which switch your computer screen from blue to red um and um so, so this lad uh, said to me i said you know are you using computer stuff and he said yeah yeah but don't give me all that i know it's fine because i've got a device which switches from blue light to red light so you know i'm okay and i said well the evidence that they actually do anything is minimal and, and by the way what time do you think you're getting to sleep? He said, mm, well, between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. <laughs> so, you know, you can almost delude yourself that you're dodging the bullets. Whereas, in fact, you know, it, it, it's, the, it's the overall duration of sleep that you need. And so um, <clears throat> the, 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 I spent a lot of my, my career trying to identify the light input pathway to the clock and the circadian systems and therefore the sleep-wake cycle. And what we discovered is that there's a new photoreceptor, a new light sensor within the eye, different from the visual cells, the rods and cones. And that alternative light pathway, which regulates the clock, needs bright light. So not, not until the late 80s did we think humans were sensitive to light. It regulated the clock because the levels of light used were really low. And it wasn't until a Japanese researcher uh, used eight hours of light of five, sorry, 5,000 lux that they got an effect. Um, and, and, and today, um, light box use, you know, uses 10,000 lux for 30 minutes. So we're dealing with the sorts of levels of light you, you get that, that, that you'd see outside. Um, and so, you know, first thing in the morning, it's gonna be two to four to five, maybe 10,000 lux. And that's the kind of levels that we should be experiencing. Um, it's quite interesting. Why are humans so insensitive to light? Why are, you know, our clocks are about five to 50,000 times less sensitive than a mouse, um, which I think is kind of amazing. And one argument, although we can't know it, 
the, the, the real explanation is that, of course, as a species, we've been looking into the fire for maybe a million years. Now, if a mouse looked into the fire, it would shift its clock all over the place. Um, so maybe we've become very insensitive to light because you know, looking at firelight would shift the clock independent of the dawn-dusk cycle, which is what we really need to be locked onto. So the amount of light has to be bright. Um, and the other thing is, I'm aware of people that defined it was blue light in the first place that was maximally sensitive. Um, but the key thing people forget is it's a bell-shaped response. So it's maximally sensitive in the blue part, but it, it absorbs either side. So if it's bright enough, it doesn't matter what the wavelength or the color of light is. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I get a bit, you probably sense a little bit irritated that, that some really good science um, by us and others is kind of told in a half-assed way um, and can be rather misleading. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, light, uh, incredibly important, but it's not the major factor that's going to that disrupt our circadian rhythms and our sleep-wake cycle under normal circumstances. And particularly, okay, dim morning, uh, evening light, <clears throat> But if you get bright natural light the next day, it's going to correct any wobble that that, that mild, mild perturbation might have provided. Yeah, I, I have a, there's, there's a friend of mine who I've been uh, for a long time now trying to pass on advice that I pick up from uh, listening to maybe like Andrew Huberman or someone who, who really drills into the idea of that 30 minutes of sunlight in the morning, as you say. Yeah. But this friend of mine seems to want to rather go down the route of trying to supplement melatonin and CBD oh. oil. And it's almost as if I think yeah. now we live in this world where rather than doing the work, everyone wants to look for that magic pill that will yeah. just do the work for them. You've summarized it brilliantly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and you mentioned melatonin. And, and so you've opened a little Pandora's box for me in that regard, because melatonin is often called the sleep hormone. Yeah. And it is absolutely not a sleep hormone. It's a biological marker of the dark. So it rises in anticipation of dark, um, and, then it, and then it drops in anticipation of morning. Incidentally, it's the, 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 as the seasons expand and contract, as the night length increases during the winter, the melatonin uh, profile uh, follows it. And for seasonally breeding animals like deer and sheep, it's the increased night length, which is mirrored by an increased pattern of melatonin release that triggers reproduction. So, you know, it, it triggers the rut, you've got mating, the, 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 the young, young are developing uh, over, the, over the winter months, are born in the spring and um, when there's plenty of grass, for sustaining milk production in the mum uh, or indeed weaning. Um, and so uh, that's what we know melatonin does. It probably doesn't do that in humans. Um, and the best data we have on melatonin, if you take melatonin before you go to bed, it can reduce the time it takes to get to sleep by 30 minutes. Now, that's the best study. Many studies have shown no effect whatsoever. So, so you can think of melatonin as being a mild modulator of sleep. And, you know, people say, ah, oh, well, if you, if you get up in the middle of the night, you, you know, you turn on the lights, you're going to suppress melatonin, which means is, means you're not going to get better sleep. This is nonsense, absolute nonsense, because alertness levels change before there's any change in melatonin. 
So, uh, yeah, again, a lot of hooey um, about melatonin. It's important, you know, but it's not a big thing in terms of our sleep. I mean, there are, sorry, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm going off of this, but you know, there are people, for example, on beta blockers with very low levels of melatonin, their sleep is barely affected. Mm. Um, there are people who are quadriplegics um, who uh, have no melatonin at all because their sympathetic regulation, the pineal gland and melatonin release is gone. They have poor sleep, but it's no worse than paraplegics who have a perfectly normal pattern of, of melatonin. Um, so, yeah, we need to not think of it as a sleep hormone, but a mild modulator of sleep-wake patterns. As we start to, to wind down now, we have about 10 minutes left. I'd love to, to jump into some other topics. The one thing you mentioned in your book, you were, I think it was in the section on dreams, and you were talking about this myth that um, I think a lot of us are told that dreams are almost a one-second flash when we wake up. Um, yeah. I wonder, is there any science or research in the relationship between or does dreams or do dreams have a relationship with our sleep and the quality of our sleep or is that just a a separate thing altogether it's it's complicated the problem about dreams is that there's no objective way to study them they are by definition you know we sort of kind of make some record of our dreams and therefore as a topic I kind of run away because I've got nothing I could measure objectively. Um, so, so let's just unpack it a bit. So we, of course, the sleep-wake cycle involves uh, non-REM sleep. Um, so we go down through stages from wake into stage three non-REM deep sleep, um, where we have probably memory consolidation maybe. Um, and then we go up through the stages into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, where, where the eyes are moving, but we're paralyzed essentially from, from the neck down. Um, and it's during REM sleep that we have our most complicated and vivid dreams. Now, what do they do? Well, the consensus I think at the moment will be is that when we're in REM sleep, we're probably trying to process our emotional responses. Very interesting study looked at dream content um, in New York after the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorist action. Um, and it wasn't, despite the fact that the news would show endless images of planes going into towers, that wasn't the dream content at all. It was being overwhelmed by a tsunami, being mugged in the street. And so anxiety dreams went up, but it wasn't a recapitulation of the event itself. Um, and so it's thought that the brain is trying to make sense of its emotional experiences um, and trying to resolve them. Now, that's hand-waving, um, and it's kind of a consensus view, and it sort of makes sense, but we don't have really good studies. I mean, I, I, I'm comfortable by saying I think it's likely that REM sleep and dreams are associated with trying to resolve emotional issues. Um, but beyond that... I'm not sure that we can say much. I wish we could. Well, just a, a couple of quick questions to you before we leave. Obviously, your books have undoubtedly had a massive impact on so many people, but I'd love to turn the question on you. Are there any books that have had a massive impact on Russell Foster's life? 
Oh, crikey. Yes. Well, well actually, I, I'm so thrilled that Lifetime has been well received. I mean, I, and I, I'm getting so much positive feedback because it's it's exactly what I wanted. I mean, one of the things, sorry, I will I will answer your question. No, one of, I just wanted to sort of say what was so fascinating is that there are something like 921 references. Mm. Um, and I thought Penguin were going to kick back, kick back and say, look, this is a popular book. You know, what's all this about? Uh, and they didn't. They just didn't at all. And it's been so brilliant because what people can do is, you know, you can read the stuff and hopefully accessible. But if you want to dig deeper in any area, you can go to the references um, and then find out for yourself a bit more. So I I was really thrilled that we've and, and I've had so much feedback saying, oh, yeah, I've been able to follow up. You know, I now understand why. You know, I take my anti-hypertensives anti before I go to sleep rather than first thing in the morning. And why vaccination at different times of the day can have a different effect. And why, as a night shift worker, I need to be fully rested and not stressed before my vaccination or immediately after. You know, that's that kind of stuff. Um, and I, and I, I've, loved, I've loved people digging, digging back into that. However, now to answer your question. So when I was an undergraduate, University of Bristol, studying zoology. I, I just loved this book called J.Z. Young's Life of the Vertebrates. And, and why it's so fascinating is at so many different levels, because you see how different groups of organisms have evolved to deal with similar sorts of problems. And I just think that's so cool because, it again, there's no one thing that is perfect. It's lots of different ways of solving a, a, a particular problem. And by understanding the diversity of vertebrate life, it's very much influenced the way that I viewed my science. Um, the discovery of these new photoreceptors in the eye was because I was aware and, in fact, did research on non-eye photoreceptors in frogs and reptiles and birds. We don't have, we, we only have light sensors within the eye. But the idea of saying, well, maybe we have a weird receptor in the eye wasn't such a crazy leap for me because I knew other groups of vertebrates did light detection in a different way. And I suppose it was this wonderful, it's an old book, but I think it's, it just lays out the diversity of, of life. And, um, and I think we should always view life uh, across the spectrum and not just through our own narrow bi biology which has evolved under a certain specific set of circumstances so yeah that's one of the books i could go on i mean there's lots of other books that have influenced me but i think that was one of the really early ones yeah amazing so the last question before um we let these guys know where they can find the book and this is a question I ask every guest, regardless of the topic. The answer could be anything. It could be related to your work. It could be your family. It could be whatever. But right now, for Russell Foster, what makes life worth living? Well, I think it is for family. I mean, it's just, you know, we are, Lizzie and I, my wife and I are blessed with three extraordinary kids um, who, who are just wonderful. I mean, actually, Lizzie at the moment is with my youngest daughter, in Australia, New Zealand, visiting our eldest daughter who's doing her clinical training in New Zealand. Um, so they're out there at the moment. But Will, um, my son, uh, came uh, for the weekend and we did stuff and it was, you know, with a barbecue. And I think that was really, really wonderful. I mean, so, but I think most people would say family. Um, if beyond the family, what gets me out of bed in the morning? Well, it's the opportunity to work with brilliant colleagues invariably much younger than I am 
in in understanding the science, getting the science behind biological clocks and sleep and getting genuine understanding of these extraordinary processes. So there's lots of things at my age of life, you know, you could do, you could do, you know, admin or all the right, all very laudable, exciting things, but actually what gets me out of is the, is the new knowledge and working with just brilliant young minds. Um, fantastic. And the future generation of scientists. Yeah. Well, Lifetime, we've talked a lot about it today. Please let the guys listening or watching where they can find a copy of the book and connect with yourself. Where can we visit? Is there a website? Can we follow you on social media? Where oh, sorry. I, that was a, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, you can get Lifetime from, you know, bookshops um, and, 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 of course, online. Um, and just, you know, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot, but look for the best deal. There, are, it's it's for sale under quite a quite a range of different um, uh, costs. Um, and uh, yes, we have. Uh, I'm I'm the founding director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. Um, we have a website, so you know, just do a, do a, a, a sort of a search for Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience at, at Oxford, where there's, a, where there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Um, and and of course, so many papers now are. Um, open access so you can follow the science firsthand um, uh, for, for yourselves so yeah and of course if all else fails drop me an email <laughs> amazing well thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure i've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation i'm glad we could make this happen and hopefully we get to do this again someday i hope we can it's been an absolute delight yeah thank you very much for the opportunity